Is this my only board here? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Are you trying to get in here? So we, we're going to announce this better next week, but so far as I know, there are only two adult options this quarter. Well, there are two, I want to say only, but there are two adult options. Phil Hartnett is teaching First and Second Thessalonians in the auditorium, and I'm teaching the book of Job in here. So that's what, that's what it'll be. I don't, there won't be a class over there unless it's like college age or something like that. But. Well, no, you can sit in the splash zone all you want to. I mean, that's up to you. Yeah. All right. I didn't wear my shades, so I'll sit down here. You didn't? Well. All right. Well, I've got to get started because I'm supposed to get through chapter one today. But. Let me, let me say some things introductory about the book of Job. That's what we'll be studying this quarter. And um, let me do, what I want to try to do today is to introduce the book of Job, talk about some things we should expect from the book of Job, some things we shouldn't expect, and then I want to try to cover chapter one. And so that'll be the goal. All right, the book of Job. It's in the section of the Old Testament that we refer to as wisdom literature. And there are several books in this section of the Old Testament. Just think about some of these. There's Proverbs. What is Proverbs all about? Starts with a W, ends with isdom. What is it, what is it all about? Wisdom. Y'all are already wise. There we go. Proverbs is about how to live the wise life. If you do X, God promises, at least in general fashion, your life will turn out a certain way. But then there's the book of Ecclesiastes in wisdom literature. So you got Proverbs, how to be wise. Ecclesiastes says, life doesn't always go like you planned. But under the sun, enjoy the life God's given you. Fear God's commandments and you'll be blessed. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. So you've got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then there's what we call the Song of Solomon. And that's about a lot of things. One of the major things is that marital love is a blessing from God when enjoyed the way that God would have you to enjoy it. And so make the most of it. And then there's the book of Job. And people think Job is about a lot of different things, but at the heart of it, and we're going to see some of this in chapter 1 especially, the book of Job is not really about, well, what to do when you suffer. There's some of that. The book of Job isn't about, well, why the righteous suffer. Job lifts that up as a possibility, but that's not really what it's about. At its heart, at least one of the main focuses of the book of Job is, how does God run his world? And does God do what's right? And does he have the right to do certain things that he does? And Sort of in the same vein of Ecclesiastes, how do we make sense of the world when it doesn't go the way that we want it to go? All right, turn your Bible to Job chapter 1. We're not done with the introduction, but it'll give you something to do while we work through it, all right? Turn your Bible to Job chapter 1. The book of Job is really about a man named Job. Now, sometimes people say things like, was Job a real person or was he just like a, an example, like a construct of what suffering would look like? Is Job just an example of suffering? But you read throughout the rest of the Bible and Job comes up. Like Ezekiel 14. If you turn to Ezekiel 14, you're going to find Job mentioned along two other guys. So there are three people mentioned that were real historical figures. There's Job, Noah, and Daniel. In Ezekiel 14, 14, it says if these three men lived, they could only save their own lives. It's talking about how things were in Ezekiel's day, how bad they were. And they were so bad that if Job and Noah and Daniel were alive, they could only save themselves. But when you get to the New Testament, Job's mentioned again. In James 5, 10, and 11, it says, Take the suffering of the prophets as an example. And you know how the Lord ends things for faithful people. And then James says, You've heard about the patience of who? You've heard about the patience of Job and seen the end of the Lord, that he's compassionate and gracious. And so, Job's a real man that really suffered. 
And that's important because what we read, and people pick at Job and they talk about different portions of Job, but appreciate that we're talking about a real man's suffering, unimaginable suffering. We're going to see that in chapter 1, but Job really did exist. There was a real man named Job, and the rest of the Bible bears this out. Okay, and so now let's talk about what we don't know about the book of Job. We don't know who wrote Job. It's in the section of wisdom literature. We're not really sure who wrote it, and here's some other mysterious things. Was Job a Jew or not? Nobody really knows. His name doesn't really tell us anything about him. The first verse says he's from a place called Uz. People think that might be in a place of near Edom that's on the east to the east of Palestine based on a verse in Lamentations. Lamentations 4.21 says something about Edom and Uz and kind of connects those things together. So we don't know who wrote Job. We, we don't know if Job was a Jew. He probably wasn't though because throughout the book of Job, Job's making these sacrifices. <clears throat> and Job's making these sacrifices for himself and for who else? His family. And then at the end, he made sacrifices for who? <coughs> for his friends. And so he doesn't seem to be serving in a priestly function. He seems to be serving as a patriarch. And you know about the patriarchal age. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the patriarchal age was a father rule system. Every man served as the leader in his family and carried out his responsibilities religiously as they were given to him by God. So Job might have been a Gentile man, a contemporary though, that lived at the same time as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We can't be sure, but he's probably in that area. There's nothing mentioned about the law of Moses in the book. Even when Job mentions his faithfulness in places like Job 31 and stuff, he never says anything about keeping Torah or about anything like that. He talks about his integrity, his own personal righteousness, which says to us he wasn't under any written law like the law of Moses. It hadn't been given yet. And so Job's probably a Gentile man that was under his family. Now, here's another thing about the book of Job. This is just introductory things I want us to be thinking about. The book of Job is long. I know you know that. It's 42 chapters long, but this is important. A lot of times when we talk about the book of Job, we talk about maybe the opening chapters, you know, the adversary comes, and we'll talk about that today, and then we'll talk about God's answers at the end. But what about all that stuff in the middle? All those conversations. Why is the book of Job long? Well, you could think about some reasons why it is. Job is suffering like somebody never has before. And short, quick, cute, pat answers won't do. Job and his friends are really trying to work through this thing. And God wants us to sit with his suffering. Don't gulp this. Sit this down. It's 42 chapters long. We're supposed to wind through it with Job. It's not just about, well, some stuff happened at the end, and Job got all this stuff back at the end, and everything's great. The beginning was terrible. The end, no, Job is long, and that's how suffering is. And if you've experienced any suffering or you know people that have, short, cute, pat answers won't do. And that's not what the book of Job is all about. Job is about, hey, a man's in the throes of hardship. He's in the throes of suffering. And what does he do? Well, he and his friends, they try to wrestle through this and they struggle through it. Everybody does this. Job's long, on purpose. Job's also poetry. Poetry in the Bible is not really about rhyming words. It's about measuring up thoughts. And so there's a lot of poetry in the book of Job. And so Job and his friends get into these discussions and there's this parallel parallel ideas as they discuss their thoughts and all of that. Um, there are two approaches to Job and I want us to avoid one and maybe take on the other. There's what we call the armchair approach to Job. What is the armchair? People talk about football happened on Saturday and Sunday and then there are the armchair quarterbacks on Monday. What is that? The armchair quarterbacks. Who are those people? They can't play. They just sit around and talk, right? Their playing days have been over long ago, and when they played, they weren't really special. They're just armchair quarterbacks. There's the armchair approach to Job. One man said the armchair approach to Job is you just sit around and pick at the book and talk about all the academic things. And then there's what one man called the wheelchair approach to Job, where if you've suffered and you know people that have suffered, this isn't just hypothetical. 
you think about what if you were Job and how would you have responded and some of the things that people have gone through and maybe what Job was dealing with as he wrestled with it. Um, appreciate the book of Job is about in individuals and all of the major sections in Job, individuals are introduced. Look at Job 1 and verse 1. What does Job 1 and verse 1 say? Somebody read it nice and loud. Job 1 and verse 1. Go to Job 1 and read verse 6. Now there was, a, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also, also came among them. Okay, the book of Job's about people. Whenever somebody's introduced in the book of Job, there's that sort of transition. At the end of chapter 2, it'll happen with the friends. Job had three friends, Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz that came. And then when God's introduced at the end, Job 38 and verse 1, it'll say, God answered in a whirlwind. The book of Job's about people. It's about individuals. It's about God. It's about the adversary in Job 1 and verse 6. It's about really a man named Job and who was he and all of that. But it's about people's lives. I told you the book is a poetry. Context is king in the book of Job. Here's what I mean. Job and his friends, their speeches. There are some things said in the speeches, really a lot of things that are true. And sometimes you might see this on a coffee mug or on Facebook or maybe even in a preacher's sermon. They'll pull a part of one of Job's friend's speeches and quote this verse like, for example, in Job 11 and verse 7, there's this statement. Can a man by searching find out God? True or false? Can you find God if you search for him? Yes. Can you find out the Almighty unto perfection? Can you know everything about God? No. Well, that's a verse that's sometimes quoted to talk about searching out God, and that's great. But in the context, it's terrible. Because Zophar is accusing Job of not knowing God. So be careful as you read the speeches. Context and study in the Bible is always king, but especially in Job. His friends say things about God that are true and about wicked people that are true, but they apply them to the wrong man. Job's not their man. He's not wicked. He hadn't violated God's law. His situation is unique. And so as you read these speeches, beware of thinking, well, oh, that's a good quote, and that applies correctly not to Job, it doesn't. At the end of the book of Job, in chapter 42 and verse 7, God's going to say about the friends, you didn't speak what was right concerning me. Which says to you and me, God listens to what we say about him. You know, Job and his friends had sound doctrine. We talk about sound doctrine. They knew a lot about God, but they were wrong. You can say a lot of true things about God and not really know God, and God's listening, and he doesn't like it. When we say God says this, or you better do this, or you're going to hell, or God wants you to do, we better make sure we've got BCV, book, chapter, and verse, that God really said that. Because Job's friends say a lot of stuff about God. They say a lot of stuff about Job, and God shows up and he says, I don't know who you're talking about, but it wasn't me because that's not who I am. It matters. Context in the book of Job is king. And then beware of contemporary comparisons. Beware of saying, I know a person that suffered like Job. You don't. Nobody has ever suffered like Job. I'm telling you, nobody ever has. His suffering is so extreme. It's meant to be that way. And nobody suffered. Beware of making co contemporary comparisons where we say, well, I know somebody just like Job. Well, this person's a Job. Probably not. Not like he did. And we'll see that in a moment. We will get to chapter one. Let me give you some key ideas to the book, and then we'll talk about my approach on how we're going to study it, and then we'll get into chapter one. Some of the key ideas in the book of Job. Number one is... Well, I just say theodicy. That's what this is called. What is theodicy? It's where people look in the world. Does anybody know any, anybody? Show of hands. If you know anybody who says, I can't believe in God, if you ever heard this even. I can't believe in God because look at all the evil and suffering in the world. Show of hands. If you've ever seen or known that. Your response to that is, whatever your response is, when they say, I can't believe in God because mom died, or cancer, or there are hungry people in Africa, whatever your response would be, where you would say, well, God still exists because of X, that's called a theodicy. 
It's a biblical defense of God's goodness in the midst of a wicked world. The book of Job is about that. How can God be good when an innocent man like Job is suffering for no reason? By the way, God's going to say that. He's going to say to the adversary the second round in the temptations, you caused me to stretch out my hand against my servant Job for nothing. How is God good if good people, righteous people, suffer for no reason? All right, number two, the book of Job talks about retribution. True or false? If you do good, you'll be blessed. Yes or no? Whenever I ask you a yes or no question, it's always a trap. It's always a trap. If you do the right things, will you be blessed? Sometimes, yeah. The book of Job says you reap what you sow, but you don't always sow what you reap. Job's friends come up on the scene. He's bald, he's beaten, he's raggedy, and they say, well, this is the fruit. This is what he's reaped. Evidently, Job, you've sown some bad stuff. That's not true. Everybody reaps what they sow, but everybody doesn't sow what they reap. They're blessed people that have done wicked their whole lives. And there are people that have lived righteously and that suffer terribly. The book of Job is about this retribution principle. And sometimes we've got this framework where we think, well, if you do the right stuff, God's going to bless you and nothing bad is going to happen. That's what Job's friends thought, and they were wrong. Carolyn Pryor, in her book on reading well, she says, everybody that's a Christian in America believes in some way, shape, or form in the prosperity gospel. What's the prosperity gospel? Think Joe Olstein, T.D. Jakes. What's the prosperity gospel? Summarize it for me. Give and God will give it back to you. God wants you to be what? Wealthy or blessed. And they define blessed, right? That's the prosperity gospel. Do we believe that? You say, no, we don't. But sometimes when we suffer, we say, well, why is this happening to me? As if to say, well, I've earned enough good credit with God. I've been reading my Bible. I've been going to church. I've been a good person. Why would I suffer? That's the prosperity gospel. It says that if I'm faithful to God, bad things shouldn't happen to me. The Bible doesn't say that. It says many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all, Psalm 34, 19. The Bible actually says if you serve God, life may be more difficult than you for you than it would have been otherwise. The book of Job says, hey, beware of the retribution principle. That God only punishes the wicked and people that are suffering always did something bad and we can know that for sure because we can't. It doesn't always work that way. Why do good people suffer? The book of Job is about that. How should we respond to our suffering, ours and others? The book of Job is about friendship. How do we help and not help people that are having the worst day of their lives? Job's friends were great in chapter 2 and after that they were pretty terrible. And so what do we do about that? What are the behemoth and the leviathan at the end of the book of Job? I want to talk about that at some point. Does God put more on us than we can bear? Who's heard that before? God won't put more on you than you can bear. Show of hands. Is that true? Does the Bible say that anywhere? Well, it doesn't, and we'll talk about why it doesn't. Why do humans serve God? Is God worth serving? The book of Job will talk about that. So here's how we're going to study the book this quarter. We're going to look at the opening three chapters. Today we'll look at chapter one. Next week, Neil's going to look at hopefully chapter two and chapter three. And then what we're going to do, because it's 42 chapters and we'll never cover it all going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we're going to look at the cycles. And what I mean by the cycles is the speeches. Everybody gets a turn, that's one cycle. So from chapter 4 to chapter 14, Job, Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, they all speak. And we'll look at one cycle. And what do they say about Job? What are some of the main arguments? And then we'll look at the second one. I believe there are three or four, four of these. Um, and then at the end, I want to talk about how Jesus applies. What I want you to do, though, every class, is bring your Bible. I want you to be prepared to think and discuss because I don't plan to preach 12 sermons to you about Job. I want us to have a Bible class. I've made up my mind that hopefully throughout this class I'm going to preach some sermons, maybe on some Sunday nights, about Job because we won't be able to do everything in here that I want to say about the book. But I want us to think through some things together. So maybe you can start reading the book of Job today. You could read it in 10 days if you do four chapters a day. But you can read the book of Job 
and be ready to discuss some things and let's try to get through it um, together. All right, before we start chapter one, does anybody have any questions about the book of Job? This is what I mean. If you have questions about the book of Job, you've studied it before, some things came to your mind. I want to know those questions so that no matter what we do in this class, we will at some point, Neil and myself, cover those questions. So if you have any questions, like I've always wondered X, I want to make sure we hit those or we get to those. And so does anybody have questions about the book of Job? Who are the sons of God? Well, that's a good question. Anybody else? Got a lot of bunch bunch of scholars. I've got a lot of questions about Job. <laughs> Kim, go ahead. Um, so I, I have heard in the past that the Levi- Leviathan and but Behemoth, yes, that they were dinosaurs. So could this have happened before Noah? Yeah, I'm going to talk a lot about them. I'm just writing this up here for my own good, so I know. Behemoth and Leviathan, who are they? Are they creatures at all? I just want you to think about that. We're going to see when we get to the end of the book of Job. Whoever they are, though, whatever they are, remember it's poetry, and they've got to flow with what Job is fighting with. We've got to make sure we'll find out if they are or not. And what I'm going to do when we get to that section, I'll just tell you ahead of time. I'm going to line up the, the views about this, and I'm going to say, here's what some people say, here's what some views are, here's some views, and which one of these makes the best sense, and then I'll give you my view. But that's a good question. Behemoth and Leviathan. Anybody else? The book of Job. Questions you have. These two, I kind of was already thinking we deal with. Any, anything else about Job? Tommy? I think in chapter 1, people that, that died, like his sons and daughters, and they didn't do anything wrong, but this is part of Job's suffering. So what about him? Yeah, well, I won't write that one because I'm going to try to do that today. But what about them? Why do they die? Are they just casualties for no reason? Yeah, why do Job's family members die? Cattle and all of that. What's that all about? All right, anything else? Maybe questions will come up as we read through it, or maybe you work through it on your own. But don't hesitate when that happens to say, hey, make sure in the book of Job you deal with this. I've got a question about this. Or what about this statement that Job makes? And this Job, because I've got one. I'll give you one. Job 1.22 says, and all this Job didn't charge God foolishly or sin with his tongue. And then at the end of the book of Job, it says, Job spoke what was right concerning me. But I've read Job chapter 3 and Job chapter 19, and Job says some terrible things about God. What does it mean that Job spoke right concerning God? When? Like the whole time or at certain times or after he repented? I want to know about that. So hopefully y'all are going to help me understand that. Steve and then Dave. Uh, Clearly there's a reason for the book of Job being in here. uh, But we don't know the author. Okay. I'm going to answer that one now. I don't know the answer to that question. But there are a lot of books that we don't know the author. That know the author and who it is. And... um, we know why it's here, though. That's what I would say. It's in that scope of wisdom literature. Again, he's in the patriarchal age. People could make the argument that maybe Moses wrote it alongside the law of Moses because it's in that same Moses wrote the patriarchal material of Genesis through Deuteronomy. But the real answer is I have no clues. All right, Dave, and then... Do we know anything else or, or do we have anything to expand this, this uh, <laughs> heavenly setting about uh, where the sons of God come to present we know some things about it. We're going to talk about that today. This heavenly council. And is this Satan? Is this the devil or not? Um, and we'll talk about that. Derek, and then I want to get started if we don't have anything else pressing. Go ahead. So I've always been confused about not only the timing of it, but with no mention of anything, Mosaic law, no Hebrew tradition, none of that. Uh, but yet he still... Uh, calls for a savior, uh, a redeemer, a redeemer. Yeah, and uh, kind of makes me wonder if it's not uh, prophecy that it, you know predates 
the flood predates mm -hmm. Moses completely. Uh, so I guess the timing of it is just really yeah, I guess it's help us put pieces together. I guess is what I'm trying. To I say. think so, maybe, but I don't. I'm not convinced completely because if the timing was necessary to understand the Book of Job, I think God would have told us without a doubt. I think we can learn some things without it, and I think we've got to be careful about reading things into the Book of Job from the rest of the Bible. Here's what I mean: We sing this song. I know that my what's the rest of it? Redeemer, Redeemer lives. You would think that's a New Testament concept. It is. But that statement, I know my Redeemer lives, is in Job 19.25. That's what Job says. He says, I know my Redeemer lives, and he'll stand on the earth in the latter days. And I'm tormented in my flesh, but one day I'll see God. I don't think Job in that moment is crying out to see Jesus Christ. Maybe he was, and he didn't know it. Maybe that's what he really needed. But in that moment, Job is saying, I need somebody to help me plead my case. I know my Redeemer lives. You three guys are terrible. Somebody out there can help me. I know there's a Redeemer. Now, fast forward, and I think this is fine to do. The ultimate redeemer is Jesus Christ and he will stand in Job's place and say you're innocent of the charges but that's not what Job was crying out for in Job 19 he had no recollection of that and so we can't read into book we got the whole Bible and so we read back and maybe Job was thinking that not not so Job wasn't thinking about that at all Job wanted an earthly helper or somebody he says in Job 9:33, I wish there was an umpire that could put his hand on God and on me and kind of help us sort this thing out Job's looking for help but I don't think he knew he was looking for divine aid. All right, let's start Job chapter 1. If you had a question and I overlooked it, we'll talk. you can come to me after and let me know. But let's look at Job chapter 1. I'm going to read the first five verses. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God. He turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house, each one on his day. That on his day is probably a reference to like their birthday or something like that, the sons on this day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all for Job said it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts thus did Job continually okay underline Job 1 and verse 1 or highlight it whatever you do you've got to know Job 1 and verse 1 this verse hinges on the book the book of Job the rest of the book hinges on Job 1 and verse 1 Job 1 and verse 1 says there was a man in the land of us what else does it say about Job he was what blameless, blameless. what else upright, upright and when you start reading through the book of Job and you want to question Job's character, remember how the book opens. I know there are going to be some things you read and you say, well, maybe Job did. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. That's who Job is. In fact, for good measure, in verse 8, God's going to repeat the same thing about Job. That is who Job is. That matters a great deal because Job starts suffering and people are like, why? We know what it's not for. We know why Job is not suffering. It's not because he was a what? A sinner or a bad person. What kind of man was Job? based on Job 1 and verse 1. Blameless, what else? We can do better. What else? Upright, what else? Fear God. Shunned evil. Job was a good man, yes or yes? Yes, right? But the Bible says more than that. He was the best man. The Bible in Job chapter 1 is going to play at extreme. Somebody says, Job suffered like nobody else has. That's right. And Job was more righteous than anybody in the world. He wasn't just a good man. Based on his territory and where he lived, the Bible's trying to say to you and me about Job, he was the best man in the world. Like he was the best. These three phrases, this idea of upright, 
feared God and turned away from evil is said about other people in the Bible. But nobody, Abraham, Moses, David, nobody has all three things said about him. Only Job. Only Job has all three of these things said about him. The Bible's trying to highlight for us, hey, you're about to read about a man who had the worst go at it. And he had absolutely no reason to suffer. If there was ever a person who didn't deserve what he's about to get, it's Job. He's upright, righteous. So when his friends start saying stuff like, come on, Job, let us in. Tell us what you did. We know what you did in the dark. you got to remember Job 1 and verse 1. When Bildad says to him in Job chapter 8, your children died because they deserved it and they sinned, you got to appreciate how they would have stung this man who was upright, blameless. He did no evil. And this doesn't mean Job never sinned. What it means, like we talked about with the elders, is... When it says he was blameless, or your translation may say perfect or upright, it means when sin came up to Job, what would Job do? What would a righteous man do? He would repent, or he would turn away from it. He feared God, he turned away from evil. That's who Job is. That's the kind of person he is. There's a statement among the rabbis which says, his within was like his without. And that's Job. What you saw on the outside is who Job was on the inside. Right before he ends his speech, Job's last speech is in Job 31. Job's going to run down a list of all the stuff he never did. And Job's going to talk about his character. Hungry people weren't allowed in Job's presence. He fed the homeless. Strangers, he took them in. Lust, Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes. I wouldn't lust after a woman. Job's going to say, and guess what? Everything in Job chapter 31 is true. That's exactly who he was. Who is Job? Upright man, feared God, turned away from evil. You got it. This is huge about who Job is and what's going to happen to him and why on earth God would allow it to happen to him because this is the kind of person he is. Um, nobody else like him existed. All right, Job had his life in order. What does the text tell us about Job in the first five verses? What kind of life did Job live? In the first five verses, what do you know about Job? We got verse one. He was righteous and all of that. But what else do you know about him? Just give me his business in verses two through five. He was wealthy. Okay, good. What else? family respect. Did you notice, I don't think this is by design, accident, I think it's by design. Job has his stuff in order, literally. Verse 1, his relationship with God. Verse 2, his relationship with his family. And then verse 3, his stuff. And that's how it ought to be with all of us. God, family, and then stuff. Job has his act together. Job has everything as it's supposed to be. Look at verse 1 again. It says, he was a blameless man. That means he was right within. He feared God. He was right above. He shunned evil. He was right without. Job has his act together. He's got a good family life. He cares about people. And he's also wealthy and he has some stuff. What did Job do for his children? Verse 5, 4 and 5. What did Job do for his kids? What does that mean, just in case they messed up? Why would Job do something like that? He didn't know their hearts. He didn't know their hearts. But why would Job say, hey, just in case? I've never seen anybody come respond to the invitation and say, I'm down here for him, just in case, right? <laughs> Don't do that, by the way. Respond for you. <laughs> why did Job do this for his kids, though? He was realistic. He was realistic. And what else? He was concerned about their soul. Why would Job be concerned? He was the patriarch. It was kind of his responsibility. If, it, if this book was written in that time, it was his responsibility as the father of that family to make sure... They all were on the right path. Do you see how good a man he was? Sacrifices he might not have had to have made. Just in case, God, just in case somebody sinned in my house, we're going to do some sacrifices for them too. And maybe my children cursed God in their hearts and nobody saw it but you, God, but we're going to do sacrifices for them. The book of Job is opening by saying, you don't know a better man than Job. There's nobody else like him. One commentator says about Job, well, maybe he did this because he had anxiety. No, that's not true at all. 
Job did this because he was blameless, he was upright, he feared God, he shunned evil, he cared about his kids. Ms. Vivian? I think it says something about him that he wasn't there to celebrate with them. That always struck me that they're having this big party and he's not there because he's all sacrificing just in case they did something. And maybe that's the case. Yeah, Job wasn't there with them. And it seems like they were old and they were grown and you'll see this as they have their own houses and stuff. But Job was dedicated to God and he was making sure that things were right. Um, what else do you see at the end of verse 5? How does verse 5 end in your translation? What do you have? Just Job did regularly. Thus Job did regularly. Anything else? Continually. Continually. Yeah. The original language says, Thus did Job, and then it says, all, all the days. This means what you read about Job, this was his continual practice. He did it all the time. Job was righteous. He was faithful. This is the kind of man he was. Um, Job was a man who always did what was right, and this is how his biography opened. Now, this is a question for you and me. Everybody in the world, Christians, atheists, Muslim, ag agnostic, everybody in the world has a Job 1 verse 1 about them, whether it's good or bad. What would your biography open with? Job's biography opens this way. Job was a man in the land of us, blameless, feared God, shunned evil. What would yours say? Just think about it. What would people, you summarize Job's life, you can boil down his life, and this is the kind of stuff you read about Job. What about us? Uh, David Brooks, I talked about him in a sermon one time. He writes for the New York Times and he talked about resume virtues and eulogy virtues. He said he kept going to funerals and he found out that the things that we put in our resumes aren't the things that people talk about at the funerals. He says there are different kind of virtues. The resume virtues are like, well, he worked for X company for this amount of years and he made this amount of money and this building is named after him. He said, but I started going to funerals and I found out people don't care about that when you're dead. They say things like, he was a good family man. He was a faithful member of the church. She read her Bible. She gave to various charities. He says, spend your life focused on the eulogy virtues and not the resume virtues. Job was a man of which kind? Resume or eulogy? eulogy. He was worried about how he was going to die. Job's life is centered and it's right. And we should be asking ourselves, if somebody summarized my life in five verses, what would they say about me? Not what, what I would want them to say, but what's the truth about me? What could people really say? Hiram is, and you just insert. You just insert your name and think, how would people summarize your life? Everybody has a Job 1 through 5. The things they care about the most, the things that matter to them, the things they are marked by, and it's impressive to see what Job was marked by, what, the way his biography opened. Um, this is important for us to appreciate. Let me move on so we can get through some of this. But Well, yeah, let me just go to verse 6 through 12. Let's read Job 1, 6 through 12. Can we get somebody to volunteer to read? Let's see. Stephen can. Steve, go ahead. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along them, among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. 
So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. All right, what time is class over? I always forget. 20 or 25? 25. Well, I don't have much hope for us, guys. I'm sorry. All right. Let me try to move quickly. Job's a righteous man. He gets people's attention, but now he's gotten the attention of heaven. If you look at verses 6 through 12, heaven's concerned about what kind of man Job is. And the text says, and we can answer one of these questions, one day, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So this sons of God, this same phrase comes up again. You might mark this or you can go look at it now. Job 38 and verse 7 talks about the angels singing as the sons of God when God hung the stars. They rejoiced as the stars were created. So the sons of God, I believe, are the he- what we would call the heavenly council, maybe made up of the angels for sure, right? So that's the, the sons of God. And then it says that there's this individual. Who else is there? The sons of God come before the Lord, and then who else comes among them? What does your translation have? Satan, right? If you have the ESV, you probably have a footnote, and it says something like the adversary maybe. In the Old Testament, there is this idea of the divine counsel. And there are times like 1 Kings 22 is one where the divine counsel, there's this conversation in heaven, and the divine counsel, they're talking to God about various things. And Satan, or this text, the Satan, this word isn't his name. This is about an adversary. It's a description. It's not saying Satan like we think in the New Testament. It's saying the opponent, the adversary. I believe it's Satan. I believe it's the devil. And you can make that case as you read throughout the Bible. But here it's just the adversary. And, you know, this enemy that comes among God's people. I'm going to give you some verses. You can write them down about the divine counsel and you can look this up. But 1 Kings 22, 19 through 22 especially, there's this divine counsel. And God says, hey, which one of you wants to go be a lying spirit in the mouth of one of Ahab's prophets? And one of them says, I will. And he goes and does that. Well, what's that all about? The divine counsel, these are God's employees, so to speak. I would argue the angels. And they carry out God's business. Psalm 29 and verse 1 talks about the heavenly council. Psalm 82 verse 1, Psalm 82 verse 6, and some other verses. So there's one that's called the adversary. I believe this is the devil, but it may it, it doesn't have to be. I'm just going to say that. It doesn't have to be. And here's what I mean. It could just be an adversary in the divine council, one of these individuals. And some people are looking at me like, well, what on earth? How could this be? But think about it. If you're dogmatic, like this has to be the devil, it doesn't have to be. What's the devil doing in heaven? And what is he doing in the presence of God? With the, I mean, it doesn't have to be. You can make the case that it's him. I preach and teach like it's him. It, it could be. I would say it is. But this hasatan, this Hebrew phrase, it just means the adversary. And it appears throughout the Old Testament like Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1 and other individuals. So it could be just a member of the divine council that's saying, hey God, what about this Job guy? And God says, well, you can go test him and see. It might be the devil, but it might not be the devil just hanging around in heaven with the angels and all of that. Some of that just doesn't really mesh. It may not be the devil as we've traditionally thought. Also see Numbers 22 and verse 22 for that phrase. Um, the adversary or the hasatan, this adversary, this wicked one. All right, beyond that, though, no matter who it is, what does God say about Job in verses 6 through 8? And we got to talk fast. We're running out of time. What does God say about Job? Isn't that interesting? We say, well, the devil did this to Job. God offered him up. God says, hey, I got somebody for you. God offered Job up. But what else does he say about Job? That's important. Verse 8. There's none like him. Nobody like him. See what I told we talked about earlier. God says there's nobody like him in all the earth. And then God repeats verse 1. Job 1 and verse 1 is the narrator statement about Job. But Job 1 and verse 8 is God's amen to that. God's saying, yeah, that's exactly who Job is. Nobody like him in all the earth. Upright, fears God, turns away from evil. So how does God view Job? Question, how does God view Job? Highly. Highly. What else? We could do better than highly. Righteous. Righteous. What else? 
Use another word. I know you don't want to use this word, but like if it's your kids, what would you say about your kids? If Job was your son, he was what? The best. The best. What else? Perfect. When people's kids make the honor roll, what do they put on the back of the car? Proud parent. Proud of Job. You could say that. Why does that matter? Because Job is going to be in a fit in this book and he's going to say, God, you turned your back on me. God, you don't like me. Job never knew about chapters 1 and 2. The reality is nobody was prouder of Job than God. You don't know what God thinks about you. You say, well, my life's in shambles. God, God was proud of Job. I mean, the most proud. God's bragging on Job. In fact, the integrity of God, who God is, this whole book's about that, right? He's going to say, God, you... You let Job, of course Job serves you. You've got a great 401k plan set up for Job. I mean, he's got this great house. Everything's great. And God says, okay, do what you want and he won't curse me. God has so much confidence in Job that God pretty much puts his reputation on the line. The only other person I know that God did that with was Jesus Christ himself. God has this much confidence in Job. He says, Job's the kind of man who won't disappoint. I guarantee you, God says, he's just faithful. You can do whatever you want to him. Job doesn't get this. Throughout the book, the heart-wrenching thing is not really the things that Job says about God. It's that Job doesn't know how much God loves him. There is nobody prouder of Job than God. And Job is frustrated throughout the book. God, you've deserted me. God, you hate me. God, why have you done this to me? And I can only imagine God in heaven saying, I've been no prouder of anybody else than I am of you, Job. You're my most faithful servant. There's nobody like you in all the earth. There's nobody else here. Okay, now look at verse 9. I would say this may be the key question in the book. What does the Satan say, the adversary, what does the devil say to God about Job? What's the answer? We're about to find out, right? Here's the question for you and me. Do you serve God for nothing? Or would you serve God for nothing? Now, we don't have to. That's the good news. There are blessings associated with serving God. But would you serve God for not? That's the question. That's what the rest of the book is really about. Why do people serve God? What does the devil say about Job? Why does Job serve God? He's blessing him. He's giving him stuff. He's... See, sometimes people say, well, I couldn't serve God anymore because X happened and Y happened. And people go through terrible things. I'm not going to undermine that. But do you have a price? The devil's saying, Job's got a price, God. He serves you because you pay well. And God's saying, you don't know Job. Now, what the devil's asking God to do isn't right. He's saying God should reverse things. Job's blessed, yes or yes? Should he be blessed? Of course he should. He's saying, hey, God, you take care of Job, and that's right. I mean, Job's a good man. He deserves to be blessed. The devil's challenging that, though, and he's saying, I bet you he wouldn't if he wasn't. And God's saying, yes, he would. Now, why God submits to this, we don't know. Why God goes along with this, we don't know. But here's what we do know. He's got amazing confidence in Job and what he's able to do. Could God have offered you up? Could God have offered me up and said, hey, he serves me for nothing. She serves me for nothing. Just because I'm God. That's what Job's in this about. One, one quick thing. I know time's going to fail me and Neil's going to be disappointed. I didn't get through chapter one. But anyway, here's something to think about with Job. Just think about this as you read throughout the book. Does Job serve God for not? Well, here's the thing. Job had 10 funerals in a day. He lost all his property. But this is the interesting thing about Job. And this had to be true if God wasn't going to be a liar. Job is mad the whole time, right? Job's frustrated. He's saying a lot of things. Not one time does he ever ask for his stuff back. All Job wants is his relationship with God. Like if Job would have said one time, what about my children? Or what about my stuff? The devil would have said, see, he's serving you for nothing. Not one time does Job mention his stuff. The only thing Job wants, even though he went through turmoil, literal hell on earth, the only thing Job wants is his relationship with God that he thinks is ruptured, restored. He doesn't want the stuff. He just wants God. Does Job serve God for nothing? Yes, he does. And we'll see it as we go through. Neil will pick up in 13 
and we'll finish some of this next week. But thanks for a good Bible class.